in the creative world, the word sales is never used. We use this code, new business development, which is code for sales and maybe a little bit of marketing, networking, maybe a little bit of PR, a whole lot of building of 75 page decks, all the things that I rail against. But I decided that we needed to take back this word and we were going to lean into it. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoy the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello, today I'm talking with and learning from Blair Enns. He might be the remotest guest we've spoken to. He lives in British Columbia, which where he lives is a 10-hour drive to Vancouver. And he was saying to me that he's just recently been to Belfast and it took, took him door-to-door 61 hours. So he has chosen a remote place to live, but he says that he couldn't think what he thinks if he didn't live there. So form and function. Blair is on a mission to change the way creative businesses think about sales. He's written a couple of books on the topic, The Win Without Pitching Manifesto in 2010 and Pricing Creativity, A Guide to Profit Beyond the Billable Hour in 2018. Now, I don't work with creative agencies per se. We do have some businesses, which I guess, broadly speaking, are digital agencies, But we work with a large number of organizations that have billable hours, and we work with large number of organizations that are creative in creating a solution for a client, whether that be some sort of technical architecture or software development, software engineering. And I think the concepts that Blair and I talk about today are equally applicable to those businesses as they are to what you might have thought about in the past as a traditional digital agency. So with the win without pitching. Why give away all your IP as part of the process? And in terms of pricing creativity, one of the essence there is value-based pricing. So we talk about both of those concepts. The other thing we talk about, which I am passionate about, is this how you sell is what people will buy. So we talk about the difference between transactional and consultative selling and how basically your sales process is the first piece of the service delivery that your prospective client will get from you. Even if you're at the way you buy also shows up in how you sell. His, uh, his first book was $1,000 when he launched his business. And so he used that as a forcing function Anyone who couldn't get past this idea that you would buy a book for $1,000 isn't somebody that he could coach. So this whole concept of how do we show up, how do we derive value for our clients, or how do our clients derive value from the work that we do? Absolutely amazing concept. So great conversation. Great to have Blair on. I've been a somewhat of a fan of his. He and his co-host, David C. Baker, 
have a fantastic podcast called Two Bobs, which they've had for seven years and definitely pulled a lot of inspiration from their work over the years. So great conversation with Blair. I loved it. I'm sure you will too. I'm Blair Enns, founder of Win Without Pitching, the sales training organization for creative professionals. And what does what's a creative professional? Oh, that's a great question, Dom, because when I started the business 21 years ago, a creative professional to me was somebody working in advertising or design. And now you look at the creative firm market. So it would encompass ad agencies and design firms. But most of these businesses are some form of hybrid specialist business that combines some aspect of design, typically website design, software engineering, and consulting. So we were talking before we hit record about, you know, what is, what is a creative firm these days? And it's like, and I said, who knows? It really is professional services with an aspect of, of, of creativity, which typically means writing or designing. But we could go down that rabbit hole too, because creativity actually means seeing, means the ability to see a novel, to bring a novel perspective to a problem. And why do those companies, or why are you the person to teach these people about selling? Yeah, I'm fond of saying, I, I really don't see myself as an expert in selling. I see myself as a bit of an expert in the creative personality. And I think what I, what I, what I bring to this field is knowing what it is about a creative mind and personality that makes selling difficult. And, and what it is, is, and your audience might identify with this. So I think of, you know, when I'm imagining my audience, somebody who is either a designer or a writer initially, probably a designer, but that's what what Mahai Csikszentmihalyi, who is a psychologist who died last year, he wrote, he coined the term flow state. So he studies creativity and happiness. And that's that we're in the state of flow when we're pushed out to the edge of our abilities, but we still have this sense of mastery. So when an athlete is in the zone and he, he's the one who I first encountered his description of creativity, which is the ability to see, to bring novel perspective to a problem. And then he said, writing and drawing, he refers to those skills as personal creativity. So your audience would identify with this definition of creativity because most entrepreneurs are creative. Like you have this, your skill, your superpower is seeing. It's the vision. It's this, this idea of like, we're, I see the opportunity. We're going in this direction. Follow me. That's, that is entirely creative. So there are a lot of similarities between my audience. And we, we almost exclusively work with owner-operated, owner-operator businesses where ownership is not separated from management because that's, those are two different those are two different personality types. The professional CEO brought in to manage. You mentioned this before we were recording. And then the entrepreneur, who is really the visionary. And as you said, a little short on accountability. <laughs> well, you know, I, th I think the CEOs that, CEO, if, you, if I break it down, I think the CEO has only got two jobs. One is to come up with a vision and the other one's to sell it. 
you've got to sell it to a number of stakeholders, customers, investors, maybe, or certainly the employees, future employees, future customers. And all the other, like if they're gifted at anything else, well, that's a, that's a bonus. But as it gets bigger, I often I meet people who go, I hate this company. I hate what my job has turned into. It, I'm now doing all the things I hate doing and that I'm not very good at. And I have become the bottleneck, right? And it's because it's that person has not elevated themselves to this and, and let go of everything else. Yeah, I struggle with that in my own business. My wife is my business partner. We've been in business for 21 years and it's like for the last two, three years, it's the constant conversation. It's, it's, it's really like, how do we get, and me in particular, how do I get out of the way of this business? You said two, two, two roles, like seeing vision and then selling it. And I would say out of that first one, there are other things that like, I think the, the entrepreneur CEO is also responsible for culture, but that is a, that's a byproduct of vision. That's of those two things of selling it. It's like, you know, the difference between leadership and management, management is like making sure the trains run on time. Leadership is we're going in this direction and then inspiring people to want to follow. So that is both vision, seeing something and then selling it. And that's, I, I think you're right. I think there's not, I can't think of much more than that. And then you look at the businesses that struggle or get stuck at a certain size. It's almost always because of that visionary CEO has held on to these other responsibilities for too long. Yeah. And they really needed to get somebody to do it who's better than them. Or their control freakery. Sometimes there's a bit of that. Yeah. They, the business, they can get their arms around a business of a particular size, but they can't, I think you said they can't enable the people around them to let them be comfortable at a bigger next size up. I have this mental model. It was cobbled together from sources. Most of it was Dan Sullivan, the founder of Strategic Coach in North America. And it's this idea of two levels of success. You get to the first level of success through hard work and saying yes to everything. That's how you launch a business. You work your ass off and you say yes to every opportunity that comes along. But the second level of success, where you start to untether the economic rewards from your effort. It requires a different set of tools. You have to put down those tools that got you to the first level, effort and saying yes, and you have to replace them with a new set of tools. And the new set of tools is saying no to almost everything. And Warren Buffett has this great line, the difference between successful people and really successful people is really successful people saying no to almost everything. So you replace saying yes with saying no, and you replace effort with risk. And Peter Drucker says in business, all profit is derived from risk. So you think about it, the longer you are at the first stage, the more those tools get ingrained and you associate success with saying yes to every opportunity that comes along and working really hard effort. But if you want to get to the next level, you have to let go of those tools. And that's hard to do. Well, it, particularly if, you've, if you're sort of in an execution cash cycle where saying no is going to be expensive or cost you money, you know, part of the business, it's just hard. But there, there are times when, you know, in those early days, when you have, you have to say yes to every dollar, every pound that comes along. And then you, but you build that muscle, that 
that excuse becomes, it's not, it's not an excuse in the early days, but at some point it's like, yeah, okay, you would be better off in the short term if you did the thing and took the money. But in the long term, you can afford to take a pass on the money and you can afford to build capacity among your team. You can afford to reallocate your attention to bigger problems where you might take some more risk and earn multiples of that. So at some point, that legitimate reason to say yes and put in effort just becomes a reflexive response to every situation. And you really would be better off saying no and beginning to take some risk. I think that's why so many businesses get stuck and don't scale. I think in North, Vern Harnish has got this phrase, which is I think 99% of businesses in the US are solo entrepreneurs and many of those are overstaffed. And it's like, you know, but, but, you know, then some proportion of those businesses go, oh, go, that's good. go beyond that and become, you know, they get to sort of 10 or 15 people with, a, with the entrepreneur and then they get stuck there for exactly, they don't, they can't give up the tools that they've got in, ingrained in their business. Yeah. Well, I appreciate this therapy disguised as a podcast. <laughs> well, I've spent years listening to you and David Baker do the same thing. So on your wonderful podcast, Two Bobs, why is it called Two Bobs? You don't know. No. Have you seen the movie Office Space? No. Mike Judge. It's got to be in the late 80s, early 90s. Jennifer, a very young Jennifer Aniston. It's about a it's about a boring technology company that's preparing for Y2K. Yeah. And these coders, software developers who are just bored with the tedium of office life. And in that movie, it's a it's a cult classic. It was never very big, but it's one of these movies that just keeps going. In that movie, the company brings in two consultants and they're both named Bob. I see. Now it's all now it's all clear now. They're not referred to as the two Bobs. Nobody ever says the line two Bobs, but they're referred to as the Bobs. And for a few years, David and I would hear from our clients, oh, you're, you're one of the Bobs. So we just decided to run with it. So if you look at the, the icon that we use, it's a red swing line stapler. There's a whole story, but it's, it features in the movie and there's a whole story behind that stapler. Okay. I'm just taking you right back to your introduction you said about sales. So one of the other things which I think is true is that certainly in the technical space and probably also in the creative space, when you say you're going to have to sell stuff, people just sort of shudder and they go, okay, that sounds a bit slimy and, you know, stealing sweeties from children or mugging old ladies. And how do you get over that? Yeah. And, you know, for 20 years, we have used that line We've used the S word or a variation of that line, the S word, in an targeted to an audience that cringes at the S word. So in the creative world, the word sales is never used. We use this code, new business development, which is code for sales and maybe a little bit of marketing, networking, maybe a little bit of PR, a whole lot of building of 75 page decks, all the things that I rail against. But I decided that we needed to take back this word and we were going to lean into word. If I send an email with sales or selling in the subject line, the open rate plummets. So we tend to leave it out of the subject lines of emails. But then once in the email, I want people to know that this is selling. We're, we recoil from the S word. And 
I did too for years because we misunderstand what it means to sell. We think selling is the act of talking people into things. And we think this because we ourselves have been victims of predatory sales practices, right? If you want to have a, you want to create a horrible sales experience, take a really high competitive drive person, somebody with, who's really competitive, train them that selling is talking people into things and put them on a full commission compensation plan or a highly leveraged compensation plan. And then you will create, so you can think of some industries, they're all getting better. All the industries are getting better, but you think of you know what it means to sell expertise. You can't sell expertise. You can't sell an advisor relationship that way. You can't treat your audience as prey. You have to you have like selling is a selling is a coachable moment. The sale is the sample. So if you're selling expertise in any form, any sort of advisory service, <clears throat> ideas or advice of any kind, the client is trying on what it is that they would buy from you in the sale itself. So you can't be this sleazy sales predator. You have to sell the way that you deliver. It is the sample of the engagement to follow. And not only are they trying it on what it's like to work with you in the sale, the roles that each party will play in the engagement are established in the sale. So if you show up as this needy vendor who really needs to talk somebody into buying something from you so your family can eat, then you will occupy the needy vendor in the relationship even after you force this close. You So I use this, make this uh, simple generalization. In the sale... You can, you have, there are two positions you can occupy. You have to choose. Do you want to be a vendor or do you want to be the expert? Now, a vendor has numerous direct alternatives. Therefore, the power lies with the buyer, the client. The expert is seen as meaningfully different. They have power that they can leverage in the sale to change the way their services or products are bought and sold. And so you should endeavor to enter the sales conversation from the position of the expert, and you should endeavor to maintain that expert position in the relationship throughout the entire arc of the sale. Because when it comes to the close, you can close from the expert position or the vendor position. You're less likely to close if you're seen as the vendor by the time you get to the close. And if you do close, it's going to be at lower margin. And even still, if you do close, you will have impaired your ability to do your best work because the, the roles are established. The client is driving, they are calling the shots, and you are responding. Your ability to have an impact is diminished. Your ability to make money is diminished. Your cost of sale has gone way up. But you've got the win. You've got the client, right? And then you, you do this a bunch of times. You wake up one day, you look at your client list, you're resentful of your clients. They don't recognize and value expertise. They don't pay you well. They don't treat you well. There's not enough money in the business. And you think, how did I get here? Well, you got here one new client at a time, starting with the way you showed up at the very beginning of the sale. So if you see selling as the act of talking people into things, you're already at a disadvantage. You, you, you need to see selling as the act of facilitating, the act of helping clients buy. And so some things are true. Your salespeople need to be consultative advisors, not transactional. Maybe not on commission at all, maybe just on a salary. 
Yeah, I, I'm a fan of a high base salary with incentives structured properly. And I can't speak to your broader audience of how those incentives should be structured, but I know in an independent creative firm, some of the things I favor, it's not, it's not a good idea to have a straight percentage of all revenue. I think any incentives should only kick in if the client meets a certain financial threshold, because you want to remove the incentives to bring in a whole bunch of shitty little clients, right? You want to, you should have a vision of what constitutes the, an appropriate client across lots of dimensions, one of which would be financial. What's the minimum spend? So you want to force the salesperson to have a conversation about the size of spend at which it makes sense for the organization to do business with a new client. Often I see the principal or the managing director or the CEO has done this job really, really successfully. And then they say, well, actually, now I'm going to, we're now a grown up firm, so I'm going to hire somebody to do it. And it, I, I often say to these people, there's no way you can, hire, you can afford to pay somebody what you're going to have to pay them. And immediately they go, they completely go to that. It's transactional. I'm going to pay them commission. They're going to be loads cheaper than me. They're going to be much less experienced than me. Oh, what a surprise. They're not as successful as I was. Yeah. None of these people are any good. <laughs> it's tricky. I mean, just go back to, so the owner, the, the founder CEO, let's just make another generalization. So you have these founder CEOs who are really good at selling. <clears throat> They're natural. And then you have the founder CEOs who just don't like it at all. And at, at some point, the person who doesn't like it at all wants to get rid of the function really quickly. And the person who's really good at it wants to hold on to it for a long period of time. I'm actually, I'm actually a fan of the latter. No, not forever. You can't hold on to it forever. But I think as you're delegating areas of responsibility, as you're adding people, that like, I think selling is one of the last things you delegate when you're when you're average to above average at it. And then at some point, then you have to invest in salespeople. And so the, 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 the founder CEO who's really good at it has a hard time replicating themselves. And they have to accept that, you know, they're going to, going to hire somebody who, who maybe isn't as good as them, but in a more scaled business than the, the businesses that I typically serve, you're often talking about hiring multiple salespeople. So I think Greg Alexander, who wrote a great book we, we might talk about later called The Boutique, and he runs an organization called Collective 54. I think he, he says, okay, just accept that you're hiring people who are 80% as good as you. But if you hire two of them, you hire three, you just start doing the math. Like you, you're not going to scale without hiring people and they don't have to be as good as you are at the function, and in, in this case, sales. So- one of your, a book you gave away for free for a long time, but now charge for? No Pitch Manifesto? The Win Without Pitching Manifesto came out in 2010. So I think Kindle was, was a thing. Yeah, it was almost certainly a thing, but it was early days. And I know, I knew of examples of other people who had given the electronic version of the book away for free. So it wasn't a piece. So I did a little trick. I gave it away for free on the website. You would read a quarter of a page and then have to click and click. So I forced, there was some friction, but you could read the whole thing for free for four or five years on the website. Then I took that down and we went to the Kindle version. And what's the essence of that? What proportion of the creative industry 
still pitch, do you think? How deep a penetration and change have you been able to bring to the world? Well, I've sold 85,000 of those books and it's 13 years old and annual sales keep increasing. So it's been a slow burn and it keeps going. And it's, I wrote it and designed, had it designed to be a timeless book. So I expect it's going to be around for a while and I expect it will continue to sell and to continue to increase in sales. But I, I'm not going to claim any responsibility for uh, how free pitching is less common in the creative firm space. Maybe I could take a little bit of credit. But uh, really what's going on is you have this internet search drove the pace of specialization no longer had to put up with a generalist when a specialist was easily found by typing a few words into Google. So it just rapidly drove the pace of, of specialization. And so I look at the creative firm market today, I see it's fully bifurcated. On one side, you've got these legacy businesses, typically the global ad agencies, undifferent, and, and, and those trying to get to global size. And so they're all quite undifferentiated from each other. Therefore, the client has all the buying power and they use that power to continue to demand that the sellers, the agencies give their thinking away for free in the sale. So free pitching is still rampant among pure ad agencies. But the other side of the market, the new more modern side is you have this vast ecosystems of specialist firms that take these different, like design, like software engineering, like consulting, like AI, like social media, like performance marketing, like all, ki like all kinds of different disciplines, and they combine them in these unique ways to, and, and then they target them at unique specialist markets. So you have like tens and tens of thousands of these specialist firms where pitching is no longer the issue that it used to be. The book really isn't about getting out of the pitching business. It really is about taking control back in the sale. Like there are 12 chapters, 12 proclamations. The first one is we will specialize. And when that book came out 13 years ago, some people like, like people arguing against the law of gravity would argue, make the case for being a generalist. You don't hear that argument much anymore. Well, I think, it, I mean, I'm still surprised that I go into a restaurant and I think, has the owner never watched Ramsey's Kitchen Nightmares? Why is this menu still 14 pages long? And why is somebody still trying to persuade us that we want an Indian Thai fusion restaurant when actually they don't? Yeah. And you think that's why I'm the only person in here. Yeah. There's a really great burger joint about an hour from where I live. And to have a really good anything where I live, I live in a remote mountain village in the middle of British Columbia, Canada, 11 hours from Vancouver. And so in the big city of 10,000 people, which is an hour away, there was this great burger joint and they had this massive burger. And if you could eat the whole thing, you got your name on this, written on this vinyl record, they put it on the ceiling. And I love burger challenges like that. So I only ate there once. And then a few months afterwards, I guess the burger business wasn't good enough. So the sign said burgers and sushi. Now, anybody who's selling burgers and sushi, you know, they're not, they're horrible at both. What well, maybe not horrible. They're not very good at either of those. The combination of the two 
is just insane. Like my friend and podcast co-host David C. Baker says, you can own a medical practice and a funeral home. You just shouldn't put them on the same business card. <laughs> I just think about generalist stuff. You know, it's that sort of department store and it all just feels, it just starts to think, it just seems beige. And, you know, young and old, men and women, boys and girls, we do everything. And I'm just less and less excited the more they tell me they do. And I, but I meet people all the time. And I was with some clients the other day and I said, what's your differentiation? And they say, we're a one-stop shop. It's like, no, it's not true. Our differentiation is we lack discipline and focus. Yeah. And confidence. We can't think of the thing that we're best at. About five years ago, there was a very popular book published called, written by, I think it was David Epstein, I think is his name. He's a sports writer, a very good sports writer. And the book is called Range. And the subtitle is something, I'm looking around for it to see if it's in this studio and it's not. It's something like why generalists beat specialists or something like that. And for years, people were just throwing this book in my face. And so David and I, in the almost seven years that we've done our podcast, Two Bobs, we've only ever reviewed one book. And this was the book that we reviewed. And the reason I was adamant that we need to review this book is because all of these, I won't call names, but all of these people who are throwing this book in my face, my retort now is they haven't read it. They have not read it because I don't think Mr. Epstein chose the subtitle. I think his publisher chose the subtitle. I think it was brilliant, but that's not what the book claims. It's only on the title. So all these people who saw the title, read the first few chapters. I mean, if you just open that book and you read the last chapter or the last five pages, you will see he summarizes his thesis, which is basically, yeah, in the end, specialists win. But the mistake is specializing too early in your career. And that's absolutely bang on correct. When you're young, you should be seeking breadth. You should be trying, stopping and starting all kinds of different things. So you learn a little bit about a bunch of different disciplines or markets. You find out what you like, what you don't like, where your natural abilities are. And then as you age, you start to specialize. And that's what he says in the book, but it takes him to the last chapter. He tells a bunch of wonderful stories leading up to it. Some of them are kind of relevant to business and some just aren't, but it's a, it's an enjoyable read. You're reading these stories about tennis players and golfers and these other domains. And then in the last few pages, he gets to his whole thesis, which is specialism is good. It's just, just don't do it too early. So make sure you read a book before you recommend it. <laughs> or before you wave it in somebody's face. <laughs> yeah. The other thing I'd like to pick your brains on a bit is pricing. And your latest work, Tome, available at huge expense. But I like that. I like that. That's punchy. It's Is it 400 bucks? Well, the book is called Pricing Creativity, A Guide to Profit Beyond the Billable Hour. And it is or was the first pricing book in the world that was priced based on the principles in the book. So there are three different formats or combinations of formats available at three different prices. The ebook is 100 US dollars. The ebook and the hardcover, which is a, essentially a ring binder, a manual, is $199. And then the ebook manual and the, a series of videos that go with it are $320. So you have three different options 
which do you think is the best seller? So this book is over five and a half years old now, came out in January of 2018. I even made the middle one a charm price. So it ends in nine, which signifies that, hey, this is on sale. So 100, 199, and 320, you would think the middle one would be the most common option. And I forget what the numbers are, but it's the most expensive option is by far the best seller. And I forget what the ratios are right now. But I'd always meant... Dominic, I'd always meant to adjust the prices as to do an ongoing experiment to see how sales changed as I adjusted the prices. And I just never got around to it. <laughs> Another good idea that the, you need somebody else to do those things for you. You do the ideas, somebody else does the execution. I mean, that book is five and a half years old and it continues to sell. The average purchase price is just over $215. And it's sold over 5,000 copies, so you can do the math on it. And it's available only at pricingcreativity.com. I've bought it and read it. And what I love is I love the observations made by the people who haven't bought it and haven't read it, who basically say it's too expensive. I love that one. I get an email from somebody. How can you charge $100 for an ebook? What's interesting about pricing is, I'll make a generalization, you, you sell the way you buy. So if you are a price buyer, if you look at the cost of everything as opposed to the value, and you can be a, a price buyer, a value buyer, and then you know, a relationship buyer, there are a couple of others, but generally you can put people into the price buyer or value buyer category and everybody listening, you can think of your clients that way. If you are a price buyer, you will, you will always struggle with value-based pricing because you don't think in terms of value you think in terms of cost. My first book, which I don't talk about much anymore, but when I launched Win Without Pitching as a consulting practice initially in 2002, I first wrote down everything that I knew about this field of selling in the creative services space. And I had a co-author who ran a sales training program that I went through and she was effectively my business partner for a few years. So she and I wrote this together. So I read a line in one of Alan Weiss's book, it must've been Million Dollar Consulting, and I closed the book and I was just transformed by this sentence. And I thought, what, if I had paid a consultant to give me this advice, what would it be worth? What would I pay? And this is early in the life of my business. I thought I, I would pay $10,000 for this. If I had paid $10,000 for this advice, it would have been worth it. And then, so I'm finishing up this book and I thought, I'm not charging $25 for a book. So I priced this book at $995 at $1,000. And I launched my consulting practice with a book that was priced at $1,000. And that's how I built this business in the early days. And so you could buy the book, you could buy the combination of book and a, and a few telephone calls of consulting, and then it kind of grew from there. But I already knew that you know some people are going to be constrained by the package. They think, well, it's a, it's a book. Why would I, 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 can't, I cannot process the idea of paying $1,000 for a book. But I knew that the people who would, would be the people that I could help. So the people who say to me now, it's like, it's, I'm not paying a hundred dollars for a book or 320. I can't help those people. So it's a great sorting mechanism. I remember having, talking to Pia Silva, who's got the No Bullshit Agency podcast. In one of the conversations she and I were having, she said, Dom, nobody will ever pay you more than that what you think you want for a day rate or what you think it's worth, unless you've paid that amount of money yourself to somebody else for a similar service. And I went, Okay. So I went and did, I went and found somebody and bought, bought some coaching off somebody. Cause it's like, okay, well, 
what does it have? What does it look like? Like if you spend this much money, what's in it? So I went and did that. And it's like that gets you out of that cost mindset. Or not, if you as you if some people are still there going, I'm not paying him a thousand dollars for that book. But if you pay a thousand dollars for a book, you're going to read it. And you're going to take the advice in it seriously. I went so way back when I was a solo consultant and I had a client and I forget the details, but I'm coaching him through a certain situation. And he says, okay, got it. Gonna do it. I'll get back to you. And I don't hear back from him. So in our next call, I said, hey, what happened in that opportunity that you're trying to close? I, we agreed that you're going to do these things. He said, uh, yeah, I decided not to take your advice. And I was struck. I was just like, nobody had said that to me before. And I, I was thinking out loud to him. I said, oh my God. I said, okay. I realized, oh, I'm not charging enough. If you can afford to pay me for my advice and not take it, then I'm not charging enough. And I said that out loud. I said, if you can, as I'm thinking through this problem, if you can, so you're paying me for my advice, you're not taking it, means I'm not charged. The next time you don't take my advice, I'm sending you an invoice. I had a lot of hard edges still not knocked off me yet. But I, I think it's in so many businesses, there is people go, okay, well, you know, what's the average margin? What's the normal day rate? And they go, well, that's all we're worth. That's all we can charge. Benchmarks. They're so debilitating. And so instead of going, what's the value to the client of the problem we're solving? And how do we at least, you know, maybe even if we don't get that, we can use that to anchor high. And just there's so many things that are just missing that would allow people to, because you said earlier, hate their clients, hate their company, not getting paid enough money. It's like, it's a game. Like you have to learn the rules of the game. Otherwise you can't play. Yeah. Most of the time you're not playing with somebody who knows the rules of the game anyway. But if you, if it's a game, you can play it and you can have fun, even if you don't win. Well, and that last part, right? I always say about selling it. If, if you're not having fun, you're doing it wrong. Like if you're stressed out, if you're, if you're fret, if you're spending these late nights, like working on a pitch deck and you're, your spouse is calling, hey, your kids are asking for you. Like, like if you're not enjoying this, <clears throat> to your point, if it's not fun, even when you lose, now it's not fun. <laughs> Losing streaks aren't fun. <laughs> but when you do it right, and even when you lose and you learn something and you enjoy it, if you're, not, if, if you're not getting that enjoyment out of it, you're not thinking about selling properly. And maybe you haven't structured your business in a way that it's you've made it easier for yourself to sell. Maybe you are that one-stop shop where if you want to, you can run a one-stop shop business, but you had better be a very good salesperson. You better over-index on selling skills or marketing knowledge and marketing spend. And if that's not you, then you really need to specialize. Yep. What is it you know now that you wish you'd known earlier? Oh, you know, I've been thinking about this a little bit lately and I, I don't know... Most of my answers to that are about life and not about business. Here's a profound, I have two profound realizations in the last few years. The first is the answer to most of life's questions is exercise. <laughs> and for much of the remainder, it's cold water. <laughs> and I relearn this truth once a month. Like whatever problem you're facing, exercise is probably the solution. And if it isn't, try cold water. So that's number one. And number two would be just something about grace, the test that you're facing in life, whatever test that is, whatever is getting your ire up, whatever is like challenging in the moment, that is not the real test. The real test is how you treat others 
while you're taking the test. So whatever the challenge is, that's just, it could be anything. That is the universe, God, whatever you like, running, testing you, doing a little experiment. And the real test is how do you treat others when you are under pressure? And do I wish I'd know those earlier? I'm, I'm not a big fan in going, going back and like, I, I don't really play that game, but there are things I've learned recently that strike me as profound truths. And other than any of the books that we've mentioned that you have authored, what else should people pick up around sales or selling or value-based pricing? You mentioned Alan Weiss. I mean, he's written 20 odd books around professional services and consulting and pricing. Yeah. Yeah. So Ron Baker, Ronald J. Baker has written a few books on value-based pricing, implementing value-based pricing. He's got a new book out on subscription. I forget what it's called. And I, I'm it's on my reading list, but I'm embarrassed to say I've lost it. It's like, and I've been looking in the office in the house for it. So Ron, if you're listening, sorry. Ron's had such a big influence on my thinking. So anything by Ron Baker and his new book on like big, again, I haven't read it, but I've heard him talk about it on like the subscription model for professional services. He's a leading thinker in that space. There's a book, Alex Hermosi wrote a book called $100 million Offers. And I have it right here on my desk still. And you look at, so I look at this book and I think it's a bold statement. It's, a, it's an overpromise of a title. There's something about the cover that says, don't buy this. There's something about the way Alex looks in the, and I won't give it away, but he's got a, he's got a look and in his photo and everything about this screams snake oil salesman. And then you read this book and it first is, oh, this guy writes well. And it's like, oh, this is smart. But like, has he done these things? He's, he's starting to say he's done these things. And then it's, oh my God, what he has accomplished is amazing. So it, it is a book. It's gone on to become very successful, a very big book. But I read that book about the same time I was reading Greg Alexander's book, The Boutique, which is a Greg built and sold a professional services firm for, I'm not going to tell his, his story is amazing, but it's another guy writes well, smart, creates a lot of content in his new entity called Collective 54. Everything he puts out is worth I just glom onto everything is I've had so many insights from his stuff and it's how to, how to, uh, start scale and sell a professional services firm. And it was, you know, there's some certain types of books. I don't know why I read them. Haven't heard of the author. I go in with a healthy amount of skepticism. And that was another book where very quickly it was like, okay, I dropped my guard. I fully embraced it. And, uh, there's so much good stuff in that book. And then if I can add a third, my podcast co-host David C. Baker has a new book out called The Secret Tradecraft of Elite Advisors. And it's a thin book and he charges $32 for it and he's getting pushed back. People are saying, I mean, it's selling really well and lots of reviews, but people are like, $32. <laughs> That's another one worth reading. I thoroughly enjoyed that, but I haven't read Greg Alexander's book. I'll go and get that. That's magic. Blair, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you today. Thank you for joining us from British Columbia. Dominic, the pleasure has been all mine. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you'd be kind enough to leave a review, it will really help other like-minded entrepreneurs find this podcast and grow our community. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find some cracking show notes, additional reading and links relating to our guest. 
There you can also find my blog and past episodes of my subjectively not crap newsletter, where I'll update you on the best articles I read that week, some recommended books and other podcasts. Thanks, and I will see you next week. 